0: Welcome to Money Stories with LDT. I'm Linda Davis-Taylor, and this is Elevating Your Network with Tina Wells.
1: I think that there really are um, some nuances that are important to recognize when we talk about women of color in, in the space of entrepreneurship. You know, For example, the average woman of color is doing an additional 30 hours of caregiving um, on top of a full-time job. Today on Money Stories,
0: we're joined by Tina Wells, the CEO and founder of Buzz Marketing Group, an agency that creates marketing strategies for clients within the beauty, entertainment, financial, and lifestyle sections. She is also an author of the best-selling tween series, Mackenzie Blue, sits on the board of several nonprofit groups, and is a mentor to entrepreneurs across the country. Tina has a fascinating and what you might call unconventional background, starting her business at just 16 years old. In today's conversation, she shares with us her personal stories, from learning about money to sibling relationships. I hope today's conversation feels like catching up with an old friend and leaves you with valuable insights as you navigate your own journey. Tina Wells, welcome to today's Money Stories conversation. There are so many things that we can talk about. Um, I know our listeners are going to be so thrilled to have your perspective. We have with us today Tina Wells, who is a true dynamo uh, in getting to know her, an amazing entrepreneur. I would say she's creative and connected, and among the many things that she is involved with, she's the CEO and founder of Buzz Marketing Group, which is an agency um, that's involved in marketing strategies with so many people that I know that she's had the opportunity to speak with literally thousands of people, and we want to draw her in today for our conversations about money stories, but Tina, before we talk about all of your work with the outside world, We'd love to just open the conversation really with talking about your own personal money story, because I know you'll agree that we all have one. And to get that started, um, I'm really interested if you could share how you might have learned about money when at, at a younger age. For example, did your parents talk to you about personal finance? If they did, what did they talk about? And if they didn't, how
1: did you learn? Uh, Sure. So I am the oldest of six children. I I grew up in southern New Jersey, but um, I was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And so four out of six of us were born there. Um, And that's where my dad is from. And so one of my early memories of both money and I think abundance was, and we had a farmer who would come to our home once a week and bring us the fresh food. And I just remember thinking, this is so great. We have this wonderful abundance of things. And then I, I remember, it's probably four or five, my sister and I were playing around and we found, I was thinking about this the other day, we found like a 100 quarters, it was something so crazy that we would found this like, buried treasure. But, you know, I think I remember growing up in a place that had a lot of abundance and being one of six, I think you might think, we would have a mentality of there's not enough, but that's just not the way we were raised. I think we were pretty fortunate to be raised in the eighties and nineties. I think that cost of living um, was a lot cheaper. And, and, you know, my parents worked really hard. Uh, My dad worked at Lockheed Martin. My mom uh, worked part-time at the bank and then went back to work full time uh, for American Heart Association when I was around 13. And so, um, you know, we, for any way we can think about it, I had a really great life. I remember we didn't get a lot outside of um, our birthdays and Christmas, but my other family members would come over to see our Christmas. So it's for six kids; it was a big, a big to do. And and my mom is one of fourteen. My dad's an only child, and so um, just grew up around a lot of people and a lot of love. But I started my company at sixteen, so I started making money for myself. Pretty, pretty young, and so. I mean, I come think- on, Wait a minute, that's that's amazing. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. So, what was going on?
0: It, you know, in your emerging adolescent life that that gave you the
1: confidence to start a company. I had no confidence to start a company. And I always say I am an accidental entrepreneur. I wanted to be a fashion editor. And at 15, I I read an ad in the back of 17 Magazine. And I applied for a job with a newspaper for girls called the New Girl Times out of New York. And so I I got a job there as a product review editor. And so I would get to write about products. And then I started sampling the product. I'd sample a product, write about it. And I became known as the girl who would do this thing. And so I kind of fell into a business and my friends were like, you were actually a blogger before blogging was a thing. And so it didn't have this like business plan and idea. I just really loved pop culture and products. And I still, you know, 20, almost 24 years later, love products and pop culture and really built my career in CPG. And so it was was very accidental. And then, you know, when I was a freshman at Hood College in Frederick, Maryland, I, Met a professor and 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 went to see her during office hours. One of my professors and said, "I've been doing this thing. Um, what do you think I should do with it?" And that's when I realized I can make money doing this. We went through building a business plan. I took an independent study with her, and I understood, you know, the value of what I was building. And I also had, um, I call I say client with air quotes because I wasn't getting paid at this time. But you know, I had someone. She called me and said, "I want to tell you something really important. You know, I just paid someone twenty five thousand dollars." Uh, for market research. And what you and your friends did was 10 times better. You have a business in market research, you need to figure it out. So that was actually the first time I started to understand that. That was when you were still in college? I was 18 years old. Yeah. So So
0: let's go, if we could go back to that 16, that period, (laughs) how did you actually even, I mean, I think it's pretty amazing that you would know that you wanted to start a business. So your dad was in a corporate job, your
1: mom was working for a nonprofit. Is that right? Yeah. And my dad was actually also a pastor at that time. So, you know, I but my mom has eight older brothers and all eight of her brothers were all entrepreneurial in some way. Okay. Okay. So you had
0: some examples in all this amazing group of fantastically warm and interesting and lively people and you saw somebody does this. That's what they do. So that was a family message about business.
1: Yeah. And I think because, um, you know, my dad, I always joke, my dad was like the best motivational speaker you could ever have. But my mom always told me how to get things done. So when I wanted to learn how to write a letter, my mom taught me, and that's what she did in her career. So she taught me how to write a letter when I needed things faxed, my mom would like fax them for me from work. And so she really helped me with like, she, my mom took me to the county store in Camden County, New Jersey at the mall to register my business, you know, when I was a teenager. And so uh, my parents were both really, really helpful. But I, I think both, they were both within corporations and not, you know, entrepreneurial, I would say, per se. Yes, as, as challenging
0: as that is, it's a different mindset. Would you agree that if you're going to be the one having the vision and taking it forward, that's that's a different mindset.
1: I agree, and also we have to remember I started. So this was 1996. There was no Mark Zuckerberg yet, right? So we didn't really have a model for what young entrepreneurship looked like, and that it should be celebrated. And people actually would say things to my parents. You know, I was valedictorian. Like she's so smart, she could be a lawyer. You know, so there, there was, there was this idea that no one really knew what I was doing. It wasn't that big of a thing that my parents were allowing me to kind of live in a dream world instead of being a doctor or a lawyer. And so, I, you know, I give them a lot of credit for for letting all six of us kind of pursue our passion and figure it out. You know, I don't, I don't think for any of the six of us we thought I have to get a job that makes money to do this. We all just kind of found. Our path, um, and my siblings are all very, very successful people. Um, but we all got to pursue the thing that we liked. What were some of the
0: money challenges that you faced when you were starting the company?
1: So here's what I say when you start a business at 16, you live at home and <laughs> your office. So we had a, an office in our home. <clears throat> And my siblings, um, they're, they joke that that just became my office. It was the family office, but it became my office. Our parents had a separate phone line for us, um, which kind of became my work phone line, right? So I had a fully subsidized business experience. You co-opted resources. <laughs> I did. <job. laughs> no, my, my siblings definitely call me a benevolent dictator. So I, you know, I took it away from them. Um, and then when I was in college, again. I went to Hood College, which used to be a women's college in Frederick, Maryland. We had our own phones, right? Each of us had our own phone in the room. Um, And then we first time I had to get a computer in my room. So I also, it wasn't like I needed a co-working space, right? And and so I, and then by the time I was 18, I was making money. So I often say, um, I don't know that I could have done this if I graduated college and then needed to make this a thing, right? By the time I graduated, I'd had six years of business and I had huge clients like Johnson and Johnson and Chrysler and Verizon wireless. I mean, my senior year of college, I'd done a six figure research project for Verizon. So I, I didn't have necessarily those challenges, but I will say where I was challenged is I didn't get to have the like fun all nighter at college. I was incredibly scheduled. You know, I played varsity field hockey. I was an editor at the paper. So I got to have, um, those experiences, but I just didn't have a lot of time for hanging out, you know. And I wish I had had some of that, you know. My semester abroad, I I did a semester away and went to Chicago, so I didn't get to go live in Paris for six. You know, I would have loved to have had those type of experiences, but I was already um, pretty clear on the path. And so I I think I look back and think about how fortunate I am that the professors who coached me, if I had to pay them as consultants, I never would have been able to afford that. And so it, it just happened to be, I was at the right place at the right time. And I always tell people start as young as you can, because I don't know if I had started at 30 or 35, if the business would have grown the way it did, because I didn't have anything at stake. You know, I knew if everything just didn't go well, I go back home to mom and dad, that, that's a very different story for me. Now I'm about to turn 40. I think think about things differently. So you didn't you didn't perceive it as a, as a, as
0: perhaps as big of a financial risk at that time because there was some you were still growing up, if you will. and There were so many other things going on. Let me ask you: Do you think that, given you were you were really hands on getting your own uh, financial education, do you think there is a role for colleges or even high schools in teaching any money skills in a more in a more um, you know specific way?
1: Absolutely. I think that I wish I had understood more at a younger age about what I was doing, what I was creating, how to charge, but not even that. I think one of the biggest issues I suffered with as an entrepreneur was understanding what I needed to put aside for myself. Right? I started so young and I just invested so much into the business. I remember I, I was 12 years into my business before I bought a home. You know, I was just, I just didn't understand when should I start taking care of myself versus when I needed to reinvest in the business. And so I really wish, I think you need that financial education as young as possible. You know, my niece who's 10 understands how to make money, the value of money, what's her money, what savings looks like. She's very fluid, but I also feel like the influencers for her generation talk a lot more about money. You do do think so? I do think so. So do your conversations, you're a
0: huge, you know, you have a huge network and talk about an influencer. Do those, do you have opportunities to be a mentor in that way in any of your conversations talking about money?
1: I think what I found um, at this life stage is a lot of friendship. I think a lot of friends, like I'll tell you one um, right. conversation that's popping up for us right now is around budgeting for um health care for our parents, right? For for wow. additional needs. You know, many of us are getting into that life stage where our parents are boomers who have been right. incredibly healthy and they're living longer. And what does that look like for us? What long term, we're doing a lot of um, talking a lot about long term health care plans and what that and do we need to start paying into certain funds now so that as our parents age, we can take care of them in a way that fully supports how they want to be taken care of. So
0: you feel almost a double responsibility, your generation, yourselves, and also looking up to my generation. Yeah. We appreciate that, but that <laughs> seems like a lot. <laughs> so let me ask you, in addition, you, you're also the author of a best-selling series, Mackenzie Blue. Um, so on top of everything else, you you mentioned learning how to write early. Now you're writing for this young audience what are you trying to What are you trying to write to them about? What are you trying to teach them?
1: Uh, you know, I when I was I'd um, say my teen early tween uh, sorry my tween early teen years I would read a book a day in the summer, and I was not reading anything that was like earth shattering. I was reading Fear Street, and. <laughs> Sweet Valley Twins and Sweet Valley High every single day. And we would, my dad would always take us to the library and I would check out as many books as I could. And we go right back the next week and I give them all back and get, you know, five more books. And I felt like when when I started writing Mackenzie, it was when Gossip Girl was really big. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fine, right? I think that the whole world of Gossip Girl is great, but I was 28 years old or 27 years old. I had already experienced high school. My high school experience when I went to private school was nothing like that. I could separate reality from fantasy. But, I, you know, as a 10-year-old, when you're looking at that and, and thinking that might be what reality should be, that's not always great. And I thought, okay, can I write about a girl who is a, a tween, so she's going through the same life stage, but she's making smart decisions. And, yeah, she might, you know, make mistakes, as we all do but I wanted to create this interesting character. And so I started writing about Mackenzie and then developed her whole world and her friends. And, uh, you know, I'm just so happy that girls and, and boys have really connected with her. And and what's so great is that was, goodness, almost 14 years ago I started working on it. And and just in January, all the books were released um, as audibles and I'm, I'm working on a major reboot for the series right now. And so it feels great to know something I did that long ago is still relevant and that, you know, girls are still connecting with her as a character and connecting with the books. And so, uh, it's, it's just a fun, creative outlet for me, right? It's not really any agenda, but I think as myself, as a marketer, we know that there's an art to marketing and there's a science and, uh, Mackenzie for me is just kind of a pure art. And yes, there was some science that informed it. I really think about the values that matter to girls. I think about the things that are interesting, uh, what they aspire to be, but then I just come up with these ideas, um, from just a really fun place, you know, like I'm exploring uh, a sixth book right now and I have a couple ideas, but one of the things I'm thinking about um, is this idea that Mackenzie runs for mayor. And I'm like, I don't know what it's like for a 12 year old to run for mayor, but that could be a really fun thing to explore. So let's see.
0: Well, it's clear that, you know, you're creative. Uh, We said that at the beginning, you just create all the time. And you, another creation of yours is this, um, community, membership community, Elevation Tribe, and you really, I think, are, are really focusing on helping other entrepreneurs learn about business. If you can think about the business women who might be in, in part of that community, is there anything about teaching them or working with them that stands out that you think is really helpful or, or
1: comments or questions that have come that relate to business women in particular? Yeah, I think when I started, um, the, the idea for Elevation Tribe was to really create um, content community and events that, that were focused on women of color who wanted to launch, grow and lead companies. And I think that there really are um, some nuances that are important to recognize when we talk about women of color in in the space of entrepreneurship. You know, For example, the average woman of color is doing an additional 30 hours of caregiving um, on top of a full-time job. So we talk about go to the right uh conferences, meet the right people. And these women are trying to balance, you know, starting a business, a full-time job, family commitments, plus 30 hours of caregiving. And so um I really wanted to figure out how to speak to those nuances. That's why in the latest issue of the magazine we talk about um this whole idea around caring for aging parents and what that looks like. And then uh, I think a lot about my friends who I call my friend tours and just about the advice that they give me. And what if there were a platform where the advice that my friends give me were giving to thousands of women? And that really was how Elevation Tribe started. And so we, we just literally uh, last week launched our second, we call them work journals um, with Latham Thomas on the cover. It's a wellness issue. And Latham started a business called Mama Glow. Uh, where she really uh, fell in love with being a doula and now she trains women to be doulas. She's the doula for many celebrities who have babies and she's just created an empire really based around um, a passion and a love. And so I think telling her story, letting other women of color see women like her her, um, throughout our platform, I think it's really there to give them some encouragement to say, if these women have done it, you can do it as well, but then also to give their, their keys to success. You know, it's, it. It just strikes me that you know this this
0: particular initiative is. You're just the great example of that yourself because you've found ways that are unique to you and your skills and talents and your heart to be in business. And, mm-hmm. and those are, as I'm, I'm really so inspired by that because you're now also saying that to other women, particularly women of color. Hey, you don't have to do it the same way, have the same type of business. Just get to know yourself and, and there's value in that. And others in the world need that. It's a tremendous message to get yeah, out there in the world so I know an, I know another avenue for you Tina is your own generosity of spirit in giving back to people all over the world really and so tell us about NPH USA which works with children in Latin America and the Caribbean that that's that's a big-hearted global extension of your energy we'd love to hear about that too
1: Sure. So I um, first found myself at NPH, uh, which stands for Nuestros Pequeños Hermanos, our little brothers and sisters, when I was a 19-year-old college student. I had gotten, uh, one of my scholarships was uh, actually a scholarship that allowed me to do community service in exchange for the scholarship. And so uh, you had to do a certain amount of hours over the summer, and I decided to take um, a semester in Honduras and do my service learning that way. And so I had gone to Honduras right after Hurricane Mitch and it was kind of devastation for me. I mean, this, by the way, um, my flight into Tegucigalpa was like the second or third flight of my life. So and oh back goodness. in the day, it was, it was quite a, a crazy trip. And so I got in there and it was just the experiences I had there were unbelievable. And we went to the ranch and I was there uh, for about 10 days and uh, these we we might call them in the US orphanages, but but there in Central America and the Caribbean, they're really like private boarding schools, kind of the most beautiful places you've ever seen. They all have their own hospitals on site. Um, you know, the this, this children go to Montessori school, but there are about six hundred orphan and abandoned children who live there. Um there, there's also a home on site for um Elderly people. There, there also. There's a specific home for people living with HIV and AIDS, and so they do. It was the first time in my life I'd ever experienced anything like this. And as a student, it just really impacted me. And then, in my twenties, they asked me to join the board, and so I spent. I've done. Uh, the maximum stint I could. Two, two stints on the board. Um, and there, there are actually 13 homes throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. We have a um, very well-known hospital in Haiti, and you know the work that people do there to support these children and 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 really the idea around building family and what that looks like is is just been unbelievable and and just remember for me the first time being 19 and 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 being an american and and not really understanding um, or having a global view at that time, and if I think now to all the global travel I've done since then, I've spent you know days in refugee camps in Uganda, and 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 gotten to see the work of you know UNHCR, the World Food Program, UNICEF. I spent three years on the Global Entrepreneurs Council at the UN Foundation, and so uh, my global work kind of only increased since then. But I, I really have a special place in my heart the work that everyone does at NPH to enrich the lives of, you know, hundreds of orphaned and abandoned children in, in those countries.
0: That's so inspiring to hear that. I just wonder if you're through your service on boards and, and hands-on, have you noticed anything about the challenges relative to financial sustainability for the organizations? Do you have any thoughts about that from your vantage point?
1: I too. So I joined the board of the Philadelphia orchestra when I was 27 years old, or maybe I think my first meeting, I was 28. And it was the day after Lehman Brothers had gone under. So that just sets the scene of of where we were. And I was part of the board that took the the orchestra bankrupt, you know, through a bankruptcy. And it's obviously reemerged, and it's incredibly vibrant, it's an important institution. But for my generation, I was obviously the youngest person on that board. um, The orchestra did not have the same meaning as it did for for some of my colleagues right. who were more seasoned. And I think coming to terms with do we have cell phones in the in the concert hall or do we not have cell phones and a lot of those topics, I thought, you know, younger people. And this, when I joined that board, that's when we started to see organizations like Charity Water and Pencils of Promise who really um, inspired people and in, in, to give and not only just to give, but to be involved. Right. Um, in a totally different way and so that's what I've noticed the most is that we want to feel um, that these these causes become they're almost an extension of who we are right we don't just want to write a check we want to feel totally involved and I just think the causes um, for which we want to be totally involved have really changed based on generation I would also say say to my colleagues on the board all the time you know I grew up, I went to a, like a, a classically Latin school. I took Latin. I had um, music education. We learned to read music. So I had that from the time I was probably 12 years old. It put a, it made that so important to me. And, and if we're taking music education out of schools, how do we then expect that those are going to be the people who are going to be the patrons of the orchestra as they age? And, and, and so the role and the relevancy is really changing. And then I think when you look at what we have access to because of technology that we can see, um, you know, things that are happening in Africa and Asia and other parts of the world, even in our own country, we we can say, Hey, the Flint, you know, the water crisis, that's something I'm really passionate about. It changes, I think the dynamic of, of how we give and how we serve and, and all organizations have to be ready for that. They have to be ready for the fact that younger people want to give in a different way. It's not that they want to do less giving. There's just a different, it's not, and they, you know, they don't, I think the term I heard that I, um, it was interesting to me is armchair activism. You know, mm-hmm. how do we get around that? And, and I think it's all necessary. However, any of us want to participate is necessary. I just think the conversation is changing and we have to all adapt to this new conversation.
0: Well, clearly, you know, speaking of conversation, you're someone who's comfortable talking about <laughs> anything with anyone, and, and not everybody is. So I wonder if you have any icebreaker questions, if you will, that w- have worked for you when you feel that you want to talk about finances and money with people. Any I, How do you get to that topic?
1: I do think that it's interesting. I feel like I, I've been making money since I was a kid, and it sometimes is um an uncomfortable conversation. I think as I've gotten older, what I realize is it's a necessary conversation and we the more we talk about it, the more normal it becomes. Um, and like I just started having a conversation where I like I, I had a concierge doctor for a long time and I talked to a friend yesterday, like, okay, now I have like I'm actually going, not just paying my insurance premium, but I'm going to the doctor. What do these things mean? I don't really know. You know, and I I just feel totally fine to ask that. But I think um, you have women like Alexa von Tobel who have made the idea of women talking about money um, something that is really attainable, and I think it is just something. You know, I'll say, "What's the last thing you bought that really excited you?" Or, or like, I'll tell you one thing that my friends and I are talking about, and it's it's not necessarily about money, but it's about sustainability. We're talking about doing rent the runway, like right, why we are renting more clothes and buying. It's good for the environment, but also it saves a lot of money. And so, um, I think now that you see the conversation of money really um, almost becoming a fashion conversation too. um, I think you find that it's just finding a a point of entry that feels um, comfortable. I think it's the, right. That, that, the, the guy in a suit is like, and then we always have the financial planners who are like, I want to talk to you about this. But I think for me, it's just finding there's so much content that exists and and there are so many platforms now that feel um, more comfortable and more attainable that I think that It's an easier conversation, but I don't think it was that easy of a conversation five years ago. Just felt like a different language, and now yeah. and
0: now it, it, you're with that great example of fashion. It's it's feeling more relatable because it's yeah. it's something you know bringing it into our lives. Well, Tina, just so many great uh, ideas and inspiring comments for you today. I wonder, just in closing, I know our listeners are going to want to learn even more about you and your work. So tell us how to do that. How do we learn more about you and, and what you're doing out there? Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Um, you can visit TinaWells.com. And um, I also have content on that site that I hope is helpful for, for women. Um, everything from like travel recommendations to business tips and, and marketing advice that I want to give entrepreneurs. So um, yeah, that, that's the place to find me. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much thank again you. for telling
0: Money stories today. And I'll be watching you out there.
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: I do. Take care, Tina. Take bye care. Bye-bye. Bye. Want more money stories? Check out my Instagram at Linda Davis Taylor underscore LDT to learn more about the incredible lineup of women on our podcast and share your own money story. Until next time,